podcast world. What's up, Chad Belding? Back at you. Another episode, a very special episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody podcast. Thank you all so much again for supporting the partners and sponsors that we work with that support us here at our TV shows, our podcast, our brands, our manufacturing brands, all of our social media. It's humbling to see the growth, to say the least. Thank you all so much. We will get to the partners and sponsors that are putting this episode together for us today towards the end. But I wanted to introduce our guest. He's a friend of mine. I met him through another friend through the hunting industry that was military special forces, a guy, a man by the name of Scott Steart. He introduced me to Admiral Joe McGuire five years ago. We've shared duck blinds in Arkansas, a little vino once in a while, wild game dinners, Mr. Billy's breakfast cooking. He uh, shares the passion for the outdoors, but he is a what? Our other friend, a mutual friend, Mr. Tom Arthur, who's a Purple Heart recipient from Vietnam, calls this man, Joe McGuire, a national treasure. Welcome, Admiral. Well, Chad, thanks an awful lot. It's good to be here with you. And uh, I sincerely appreciate you keeping in touch over the years with uh, your text messages and emails and just checking and seeing how I'm doing. And I appreciate that. And it's really good to see you. I don't think uh, we've actually been together since uh, maybe a couple of years ago at SHOT Show. Like, yeah, we uh, uh, we went to that found uh, the the foundation party there at Tau, and you had me right. as a guest, which I really appreciated. I was honored to be there. And then you kind of went to work. You went to work. On, you were still president of the Naval Warfare Foundation, I believe, at the time, and you also took a job um, in the government. And now you are um, out of both of those. What do you, you call it, president? President? Uh, what? As far as the foundation goes. <laughs> President Emeritus. Emeritus. Yeah. yeah, whatever that means. <laughs> you know, yeah. Hey, why would Tom Arthur call you a national treasure? And what I, what does he mean by this? Because he won't even tell me what he means by it. I, I think Tom is just being uh, uh, overly kind and overly generous. You know, I just had the good fortune to uh, serve uh, in uniform for 36 years and uh, 34 of those as a Navy SEAL and had uh, the opportunity and privilege to work with uh, the best people uh, in the country. And then uh, to uh, also, after that, have an opportunity to run the foundation where we could uh, send the children of fallen special operators to college. And I think for the last uh, couple of years where I had an opportunity to serve back in government as the president's uh, director of the National Counterterrorism Center and then uh, the president's intelligence officer uh, as the uh, director of national intelligence. but. I don't think I'm a national treasurer, uh, but uh, I think Tom is just being overly kind and overly generous. Yeah, I think that he's a, a generous guy, but there's got to be something behind it. And I know how humbled you are. And it it's it's really it really has set forth a, a, a personality trait in myself that I try to practice as much as I can that of of what humility really is and how you always said in the seals that your that your brothers in the navy seals were more important than you were and i've tried to i think it's very hard for a man or a woman to get to that in life i really do i i think that a lot of people say they want to get there i think that a lot of people have the mindset that they that in the confidence that they can but i don't know when it actually takes place in a person's life. And I think that it's different timelines for different individuals, you know, dependent on several things, but I'm just, I, I think that to be able to dedicate your life to other individuals like you do in the SEAL teams and that you did for 34 years as a Navy SEAL, special warfare, you were doing missions that a lot of us in America and citizens of this country have no idea that are taking place. Is that fair to say? <laughs> Well, yeah, unless the guy writes the book and they make a movie out of it. But, <laughs> but outside of that, uh, we, we hope that most of the operations that they have, which are continuing on even today, Chad, 
uh, just remember, remain classified and out of the public view. Now, you you always say you you make sure that everything stays classified. Is that correct? Well, I do my best for that. Uh, that, that you know, there's there's classification rules. You know, whether it's a confidential secret or top secret, with the periodicity of how long it has to remain classified. But um, you know, I, I think it's uh, critically important to make sure that uh, you you don't uh, go on and say what what you've done, because um, you know even the things that I did as a young man, as a young officer, there's seals out there doing today, and you want to make sure that uh, the countries that are involved that uh, they're doing the work don't have situation awareness and uh, sensitivity. And we've got to make sure that we protect those young men and women that are out there right now in harm's way. And I and I understand that full heartedly, Emerald. And I'm wondering, and if you don't, again, we we talked before that if I do have happen to say something or ask something that is classified or can't be, I'm fine with it. I, I respect what, everything you have going on in your career. When something does happen where a movie is made or it comes out and there's a national talk show and there's credit taken for something and, you know, like there's been stuff that's happened in the last 60 months where you hear this or a movie was made or, oh, this guy is the one that was responsible by himself for the takedown of this, this terroristic leader or whatever. Okay. I'm just, I'm just speaking theoretically here, Admiral. Does it... A man of your valor, a man of your substance that spent that many years defending our freedoms... Does it give you that feeling of like, why? Like, that's not what this was for. That's not what this is meant. This is a team of brothers that should have never come out. It should have never even been mentioned. Is that kind of the stance that you take on the Hollywood part of it or the national, you know, the, the, the national attention brought to it? Well, I, I don't want to criticize any individual. Uh, and I, I understand what, you know, what, what you're talking about. But my thought is this, um, that um, nobody should judge their value to the special operations organization by your proximity to the target, because absolutely everybody in the organization got you to where you are. Let's just say the raid in Abbottabad with the, with the SEALs. You know, uh, the intelligence folks found the compound, the helicopter pilots flew them there. I mean, there was an awful lot that went into it. Somebody did take the shot, I got it. And uh, they're, you know, they're extremely brave uh, and, 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 and courageous. But to me, I've always believed that um, everybody got you there and that nobody in the organization, nobody at all uh, should judge their value to the organization uh, by their proximity to the target. It's a team effort. I love how you say that, that you do not value or judge your value to the organization based on your proximity to the target, meaning you could be 200 miles away and have everything to do with the success of that mission based on the team effort that was put forth leading up to it on the strategizing everything that went into it absolutely so you know let's just you know we, we talked about the the raid in Abbottabad. so when the helicopters came out there was not enough fuel to get back into afghanistan so they had to do a planned refueling but when those helicopters landed and they had osama bin laden's body in there the seal team and all of the information that they took off target who's the most important man in that mission right now it's that logistics sergeant with the fuel hose <laughs> who's refueling those helicopters right now to ensure that everybody gets back into uh, to Afghanistan. So everybody's on the team. Everybody plays a role. And it's just like, you know, don't play little kid soccer. Everybody stay in your lane, stay your position. And if you do it that way, you know, victory is assured. When you're a SEAL, Admiral, is there often cases to where you're on your own, though? And I understand the team effort, but is there was there times in your career to where you were on a 
what would it be called a solo mission to where you were to go into some unknown territory to look for the target or to get intel or something where you knew your team was but behind you but you had nobody with you at that time no uh, I, I never have and uh, the one thing about uh at least in naval special warfare i mean we do have other special mission units in, in special operations but you always have a swim buddy and you, you go through buds with your swim buddy you know you have somebody that you're with all the time and that uh, you know our missions are always such that uh, I've always got somebody who I know without any doubt that I can absolutely rely on, and he knows that he can rely on me. And as Marcus Luttrell said, uh, and you know, he and I were in an interview for 60 Minutes or several years ago, that in that battle for uh, Red Wings, that uh, he was shooting not to keep himself alive, but he was shooting to keep the two guys on the left and the right alive, and he knew damn well that they were, uh, they were shooting to keep him alive. So it's a team effort. And when Marcus Luttrell says something like that, do you automatically go back into your experiences to where you may have been not in that same exact specific firefight that he was referring to, but you, did your mind automatically go to one where you could reference that in a heartbeat as well? Well, it's the ethos. I mean, it just, as I said, my teammates more important than I am. And you want to make sure that uh, you're doing your bit and um, you know, you never, ever, ever want to let a teammate down. So, you know, Marcus, uh, things were a lot different when I was a younger man. I spent my time being a combat swimmer. Uh, I've deployed on over 20 uh, submarines, both U.S. submarines and foreign submarines, uh, doing missions out of the uh, submarines. And uh, the way that, you know, we've still got uh, SEALs who are commandos from the sea being involved with that. But I think most part, when people think about today's Naval Special Warfare SEAL, they think about the commando on land more so than the combat swimmer. But when you hear the word SEAL, wouldn't most of it be water related with the missions? And, 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 I'm, and I'm just assuming this. Wouldn't one be right to assume that, that most of the missions performed by a SEAL team would be through water? Well, uh, we are, you know, sailors, commandos from the sea. And uh, you, would, you would assume that. But with today's fight uh, in Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, Yemen, uh, and a lot of other places, you know, where, you know, the ocean is just a means for you to go to work. And uh, you really have to get ashore. But uh, we do have an awful lot of missions out in the Pacific, uh, you know, where we've got dedicated submarines to SEALs. We have got dedicated underwater platforms. So they are actually the most classified missions that uh, Naval Special Warfare SEALs do are our submersible operations um, uh, in, in the ocean. So before any of this can take place, and I, I've had conversations with you about this, but a lot of our conversations had, had taken place during your career as far as the, the questions or the timing that we were referring to. At what point in Admiral Joe McGuire's life do you know that this is your path? Is it when you're 15? Are you nine? Are you in high school? How does it start that you know I'm going into the Navy and I'm going to protect our freedoms? Well, uh, my father uh, retired uh, 30 years uh, as an Army officer, uh, 10 years on active duty, 20 years of reserve. My two brothers were in the Navy. My brother Ben uh, retired as a Navy captain, and uh, he actually uh, brought me down to the Navy recruiter in New York City uh, to sign up. And uh, when, when I took the test for officer candidate school, and you know, surprisingly, I passed, and the recruiters asked me what I wanted to do, I really hadn't given it much thought. And then I just said, well, you know what? I want to be in UDT or SEAL team. And the recruiters back in 1974, where there were less than 800 people 
in, in SEAL teams at UDT back then, could not figure out a way, you know, how I could get into the SEAL team. So I spent two years at sea on board the USS Coronado before I had an opportunity to go to basic underwater demolition SEAL training, which is there's nobody who can really, you prepare as much as you can, but nothing can really prepare you for what it's like to spend your basic time, 26 weeks of fun in the sun in Southern California. Every day is game day. Uh, and you never have an opportunity to say, I'll put out today and I could take it easy tomorrow because tomorrow is more difficult than yesterday. But as difficult as it was, and it still is today, um, I just, you know, when I was in it, I just said, it was hard, but I was just born to do this, <laughs> you know? And um, just working with uh, the people, uh, the instructors who I admire tremendously uh, and my classmates, uh, it was always challenging for all 34 years, but it was always a natural fit and it felt just so right. 26 weeks of fun in the sun, Southern California, I assume down by Coronado or San Diego where the, where the SEAL training center is. Um, without giving away any secrets or anything that you cannot just talk about, can you reference like one of the big challenges you remember the most that would people would be like, wow, you actually have to do something like that to become a Navy SEAL? Well, I think the, the one thing uh, that uh, since we started our training in World War II is that every class is done without a doubt is about in the fifth or sixth week of training is called Hell Week. Will you stay awake for 120 hours? You start on Sunday, you go and you finish up on either Friday night or Saturday. You get a couple of hours sleep during the week and you need to have a couple of hours sleep because the studies have shown without those few hours of sleep, you die. Uh, so we literally bring each other to death's door. And that is the defining moment uh, in, 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 in the SEAL. And once you've made it through Hell Week, which is our highest attrition week, uh, then there's a couple of things. One, you've demonstrated to yourself that you can accomplish something. And you've demonstrated to the instructors that this guy is trainable. And now we're going to have some very, very arduous and difficult training that's extremely costly to the American people. So uh, that Hell Week is the one thing that we all know, if you've made this through this, and every SEAL who's wearing a trident has been through Hell Week, you know that the guy on the left and the guy on the right, no matter what, is not going to quit. What is the percentage, what is the success rate? Do you know, are there studies, obviously there's studies done. Is it 30% of the men that, that enter this survive it? Is it, is that low? Is it, is it higher than that? Or what is, how many people enter a year and how many people come out of it? Um, my numbers are a little bit off right now, but in my class, I started with uh, 145 students um, uh, in, in the first phase. And uh, we graduated 17 of the original 145 and uh, a few from the class ahead of us that got rolled back because of injuries. And um, I would say that it's probably about a 70 or 80% attrition rate. But the mission is to graduate qualified people, not to knock them out. And by and large, the attrition rate is by people who decide this is not for me. And I ran the training command from 1997 to 1999. And before they go into Hell Week, I'd throw all the instructors out and I'd talk to the young men and I would tell them, look, just keep going. Just make it from one evolution to the other, make it from meal to meal, and just don't quit. And you might graduate. And uh, to, to me, 
I, I, I said, you know, if I could do it, you could do it. And the thing is about the, this, this hell week there is that I mentioned to the young men that if this is for you and you quit, you will regret it for the rest of your life. And if this is not for you, you're going to know that this week. And it's probably a good thing that you're leaving. <laughs> I don't know personally, like, it just seems like some people would never, like myself, let's just take me, I'm asthmatic. Would that matter? Would Did you ever run across anybody that was exercise-induced asthma? Could they even possibly even keep up with what y'all were trying to do or no, what you were expected to do? Well, you, you've got a very, very stringent physical uh, uh, criteria because it's also a diving program. So you have to go through the diving medical physical uh, you know, prior to that. And anybody who would have a precondition uh, would, would be precluded from doing that because of the diving phase. And when you say diving, are you, is it underwater free diving? Is it, is it both tanks and free diving that you have to be able to do as a seal? Well, uh, there, there's, there's two types. Uh, for the most part, for the combat swimming, we use an oxygen rebreathing rig uh, that will allow you to be submerged for three hours plus, uh, and you recycle the air and oxygen, it gets scrubbed. But, the, but there are no bubbles uh, in that. So that when you go into an enemy harbor, you know, there's nobody to be able to see the bubbles, the telltale sign. There's one. And then we also have mixed gas rigs that those in the sealed delivery vehicles are submersibles uh, to, and uh, they for extended periods of time, uh, they, they will go on 10, 13 hour missions, submerge in a wet mini sub. Uh, and when they go into harm's way, uh, they'll be in a, a mixed gas, which is different than just the pure pure oxygen. So you would be in this submarine, and you would have your suit on, and you would have your oxygen your oxygen allowance on you, depending on what time the mixed gas or the non bubble. You would be, be you would know what your mission was. You would get to a certain distance away from the quote unquote enemy harbor, and now you evacuate that submarine, and now it's on you to swim and stay out of any harm's way and out of the enemy's vision by swimming underwater into the harbor and getting to a point to where you can get rid of that suit, get rid of that tank and get ready to go into combat. Is that fair to say? Well, that's fair to say. Yeah, that's, that's true, Chad. But also um, you would, the submarine would get you in as close as it possibly could undetected. Then you would leave the submarine. And for a certain period of time, depending on how far out from the harbor you were, you would swim on the surface. Now this is all at night. Uh, and then you would get close to the harbor, and if there were harbor defenses, you know you would you would submerge, you know, prior to getting into the harbor. And then, you know, when I was a young officer with my swim partner, uh, who was a member of the United States Olympic swimming team, um, we would spend we would be submerged for three hours plus without ever coming to the surface because we memorized all of the uh, the headings underwater, just like flying a plane. You go on such and such a course for a certain period of time. We knew the tides, we knew how fast we swam, uh, and we knew where we had to go. Now, we might be going into our harbor to put something on a ship, or we might be going in there to uh, put a sensor package uh, in there. And then more often than not, we would either return to the submarine, uh, which would be a pretty arduous swim back, uh, or there might be a um, classified surface boat out there whether it would be uh, from our, our intelligence uh, agencies that would uh, be a commercial type of boat or a civilian type of boat that you would rendezvous with that, come back on board, they would hide you, and then you'd go off. So 
uh, I've, I've done swims, I think, in excess of 13 hours and uh, in cold water in, in, in the Baltic. What do you mean swims for 13 hours, meaning that you're doggy, at least doggy paddling for that long? Well, you're not doggy paddling. As I said, my swim partner was the member of the Olympic swimming team. You know? So you're, so you're so, underwater, just free stroking, like free stroking no, underwater? No, no. no. So you're um, surface swimming. Well, we've got our fins, right? And we have our oxygen rebreathing rigs. We have our equipment. We have our weapons. So there's one seal who is the pilot. So he's got the, the navigation where he's got a compass. And we try to stay about 10 feet to 15 feet. Because oxygen, you can't go too low in oxygen or you wind up with O2 toxicity. But in addition to that, at about 10 to 15 feet, the water is warmer. And when you're in the water for, you know, excess of 10 plus hours, a little bit of temperature uh, helps. And then uh, my job would be, uh, if my swim partner was, was, was driving, I'm keeping the time uh, for the heading. If we're supposed to be going on 045 for 13.5 uh, minutes, I'm watching that. He's it. As we're coming up on the turn point, I'd hit him and let him know we've got about 30 seconds. And once the, we came up on that, stop. And then we, he knows in his head, I know where we're going. We turn to the next heading. And once he's ready and he's on, he's on the heading, then he just hits me and I start the clock again. So everything is timed. And then once we're in the harbor, we have a couple of places there that we can use for a reset. Uh, but we don't want to come up. Because if you come up, there's an opportunity of being compromised. Uh, but it takes a long, long time to be trained to be proficient in, in that. And I would say um, that you know back then, uh, at, when I was a combat swimmer, I probably spent about 300 hours uh, underwater uh, on oxygen. Uh, in 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 your career? No, no, that would be one year. One year, 300 average hours a year. Yeah. And that's yeah, that not was, all missions. That's practicing and everything. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Practice makes perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so why do we you, go to the range? <laughs> so do you look at a swimming pool now and just get a feeling like no thanks? Do you look at the ocean now and you're like, are you over swimming or do you still love it? Oh, I love it. 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 Did yeah. you always love it when you did, when you were in New York and you made that decision? Did, were you a swimmer then? I, I was. I was. Uh, uh, you know, people don't understand that Brooklyn is on Long Island. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we, 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 I would get up. So uh, when I was about seven years old, we had a public high school there, Madison, James Madison High School, that had a uh, summer swimming that you could sign up. And the first session was at eight o'clock in the morning for an hour. Uh, and then I would, I would show up. I'd ride my little bicycle there. I'd swim for about, you know, play in the water, but swim. Uh, and then uh, we'd go home. My mother would pack us up and take all five kids to the beach. We'd spend, uh, you know, four or five hours there uh, in the Atlantic. I had two older brothers, and I was a shrimp. And, uh, you know, they'd be in the water, and I just did my darndest to always try to keep up with my older brothers. But I was always drawn to it. And then I was a college swimmer, uh, and I was the, the captain of my uh, college swimming team. We won the conference championship, and I was also a member of the New York Athletic Club swimming team. And um, so uh, I, was, I was actually back in the pool, and uh, until this coronavirus hit, you know, and uh, yeah, no, I, I love it. 
I, I think another misconception about swimming, if you don't do it a lot, is how difficult it truly is on the body, using muscles you don't even know you have, um, the ability to keep the perfect form, to relax the body in a, in a position to where most people would go into maybe a panic of, of, of being in water and, and trying to figure out their oxygen levels and their breathing techniques. And I think that um, as far as like being one of the most important athletic things that somebody could become proficient in, I don't know if there's one more important than swimming. I think it's easier on the body than running, you know, for longevity part. So that part of it, just, you know, right there, you can, you, you keep swimming, you know, late into your way later years of life, you know, into your eighties and nineties, you can still get a lot out of a good swimming workout. You know what I mean? Uh, absolutely, Chad. But I, I think that um, swimming is really an essential uh, thing that people should learn to do. And uh, my children uh, wound up being very, very, uh, competitive swimmers. But the reason why my wife and I uh, got our children involved in competitive swimming, uh, when I was in SEAL Team 2, uh, one of my colleagues, uh, first class petty officer, his four-year-old daughter fell into the pool and drowned. And uh, it was just a local pool right there with the next door neighbor. And she, you know, just fell in the pool. And we just figured out, well, no matter what, they're going to learn to be able to make it to the side of the pool and just have confidence in there. But as a SEAL, you know, we lived in Virginia Beach, uh, Southern California, Hawaii, and uh, it was just a natural environment for the kids. But, um, you know, you just never know when you're going to wind up in that environment where you just may need it to make it to the side of the pool or just to shore. And I, I think that also it gives people confidence. But for a lifelong exercise, it really, it doesn't tear you down. And uh, it sure helps keep you in shape. Do you Do you think that your ability to because I think that there's a certain mindset of a swimmer to be able to do what I was trying to explain of just making it across the 25 meter pool there and back, right? There's a big time mental, uh, and the word that I like to use is, and, and you can talk on this word cause I, I really, I wrote it down to talk to you about it is in life. We have thresholds and one of my biggest thresholds in life, Admiral through my baseball career, my hunting or business or whatever was in a, in a pool where I love to swim. I love being in the ocean. I love being in the water i look at what you do and what other seals do and i get i'm not envious of it but i'm like very interested in how you can get the body to do that because of my thresholds personally of looking up when i thought i was close to the other side of that pool and being nowhere near it and then as life progressed i would get more proficient at it i could swim longer it was good for my asthma um i was i, I became obsessed with it to where i'm nowhere on your level or anybody's level but i i, I started to really get it intrigued by free diving in florida and, and my buddy Brett Cannon can go 40 feet and other guys go 120 feet. You know, like it's crazy the things that I've seen some people do. So the water part of it, I love being a water baby, you know, just being around it all the time. I love having my daughter around it. But that threshold of the fright and the scare, the, there was just so much, I don't know if it's anxiety or something that comes over a person because of the unknown what's under the water maybe or what's in the water or like the drowning fear. Like uh, there's a big threshold in swimming. I don't know if that hits home with you at all, but I think that that's one of the reasons why people don't take swimming to the next level in their careers or their lives is because they can't get over that initial threshold. And that might be premature or unfair to say, but I'm just talking from personal experience. Well, you know, I, I think like in, in any activity or any, you know, um, have realistic uh, goals initially. And if, you, if it's just not to make the length of the pool, start off swimming the width of the pool. 
uh, get some confidence in doing that and swimming back and forth, but have reasonable expectations. And then, you know, if you do one lap, you could do two laps, but just do what you can. Uh, and sooner or later, you're going to build up uh, a, a, a confidence and you're also going to be able to, to build up the endurance. And it takes a while uh, to build up endurance in swimming uh, to the point where it is just natural. Uh, it, it would say by the time, you know, it would probably take me in college, really uh, three months, four months of you know, the season started and you're in there before you actually feel like, you know, you're at a pretty top level. And, um, you know, and, and actually to swim at a national level, uh, it, I would say it takes a minimum of six months in constant work. But like, like any activity, you know, just start slow, be realistic, and, and, and then just but hang in there and don't be, don't be discouraged if you didn't do what you wanted to do. Just go back and, and try again. What's the farthest swim you've ever done in your life for just going? Like how many laps, how many meters is the longest you've done? Just, you know, whatever stroke it is, but without getting out, not a mission or anything, not with oxygen on you, just a free swim. Could you have a number that you've done that's in your head? Well, um, competitively, it would be the uh, uh, 1,650 yard freestyle, which is uh, 66 lengths of the pool. Uh, and that's in a race that that's competitive, but, um, you know, for swimming practice on a, you know, normal, normal day, uh, you'd swim, you know, 7,000 to 10,000 yards every single day uh, in swimming practice. Uh, but in the ocean, as I said, um, you know, I don't know, uh, I've, I've swam significant, <laughs> significant distances in the, in the ocean. But, uh, you know, the thing is, so you just don't go do something like that unless you're prepared to do it. Uh, you have the equipment, the training and the confidence uh, in order to do that. But I will also say that um, uh, as comfortable as I am and as confident as I am, there were a couple of times where I just realized I'm in trouble. <laughs> and I, I just got to stay calm uh, and figure out how am I going to get out of this darn thing? Because um, uh, the ocean is one thing there that if you don't take it seriously, it can kill you. Oh my gosh. In way more ways than one. Yeah. Like it's, it's, did you ever, this is probably a dumb question, Admiral, but did you ever <laughs> encounter ocean life when you were on a mission or you were training in the ocean? Did anything ever happen with ocean life? Oh, sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, you, um, mostly in, in training missions down South in the Caribbean and, and Florida, where you could do an awful lot of training, uh, in crystal clear water. Most of our operations were up North. You know, when I was growing up, we had a thing called the Soviet Union. <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of up north and cold, you know, with big tidal ranges. But um, sure, uh, we, we'd run into, I mean, very, very large barracuda. But I do recall one time I was swimming along with my swim buddy uh, in the Caribbean. This was at night. It was a training mission. And um, you know uh, what the uh, sea lamprey are, those sucker fish that yeah. uh, hang on to sharks? Yeah. Well, well, uh, he's driving and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm timing. And all of a sudden I look down and I've got four or five of these sucker fish kind of stuck on me and he's busy. And I'm realizing these things just left the host platform and that shark is over me somewhere. No you know? way. Yeah. And it's one of these things. Well, you know, anytime he wants to do it, they can do it. So you just kind of have to just get that out of your mind and realize that's where they live. That's their home. Uh, but I've also run into whales uh, and, and a lot of other things. And, and it's always been fun. This when uh, you know in Southern California and Hawaii surfing, uh, you, you know you'd be surfing on the way in, and you would have dolphin who would get into the wave and surf along with you. So you know that's there's enough food in the ocean uh, for them that uh, you really 
don't have to worry too much about being hit by a shark. It does happen down in, uh, in Florida with the bull sharks, and I'm sure you're aware of that, mostly in shallow water, and uh, that's because they mistake uh, human beings for you know, uh, a fish or a, 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 um, a wounded animal. But I think, say, shark attacks and uh, other from, for prey are just mistaken identity. So you just have to drive that out of your mind uh, and figure hey, that's where they live. Easy for you to say, Admiral. Easy for yeah. you to say. Has there ever has there ever been a, fata- a fatality in SEAL training from a shark? No. no. No, there never has. No. We did have one time, uh, this was, I believe, in the late 60s, early 70s, where uh, one of the guys was in the Caribbean and uh, just uh, in his off-duty, I mean, everybody's a swimmer, just decided to go for a long swim, and uh, he did get killed by a shark. Uh, that's the only one that I realized, and uh, that's probably about you know, 45, 50 years ago, 45, 50 years. So back to the seals, what is, what is the mission of the Navy seals and how do they work in conjunction with our other branches of our armed forces? Just in layman's terms, when you take that oath and you become a seal hit on that. And then I would like you to, to end this by telling me what you mentioned, you were a seal team too. So what is the difference? Is it experience is it longevity do you automatically make it to seal team six if you stay in for long enough is that the ultimate and and how does that all work out but what is the mission first of all and then how do you make it to six well you know after 34 years and you know also been the commander uh for for, uh, 39 months uh like most uh seal officers who wind up being the commander of the seals you you have to serve or not have to but more often than not you've served in every seal team underwater demolition teams, SEAL delivery vehicle teams, staffs, and the special mission units. So that, that's the SEALs. The SEALs are just a part of the United States Special Operations Command, you know, which is headquartered in Tampa, Florida. And underneath the United States Special Operations Command is the Army Special Operations Command, which is Special Forces, Green Berets, and the 160th Special Operation Aviation Regiment and other uh, organizations. Then there's also Marine Corps Special Operations Command, then uh, there is uh, a Naval Special Warfare and Air Force Special Operations Command with the, the, uh, the PJs, as well as our, they fly our fixed wing special operations aircraft, our AC-130s uh, and our penetrating aircraft. So uh, there are 65,000 people in the United States Special Operations Command. And there are roughly about 450 aircraft in the United States Special Operations Command. So. You know, SOCOM itself would be one of the largest air forces in the world. Uh, so we work together as a team. And uh, whether you're like, you know, like Admiral Bill McRaven, as you, I think you know, uh, was the uh, SOCOM commander. He was also the JSOC commander uh, during the raid to Abbottabad and uh, for the uh, Captain Phillips. But underneath uh, uh, Bill as the SOCOM and JSOC commander, he had Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine Corps Special Operation Forces. So we're difference in size. There are about 9,000 people in Naval Special Warfare and about 2,500 SEALs. But we also have our special boat teams. And these are, these are sailors who are specially trained to drive our high-speed configured special operation boats that we have. In the Army, we have our special forces, our Green Berets, who their job is to train the trainer. They're also just marvelous offensive uh, officers. Rangers, General Stan McChrystal was a ranger. Uh, and, and, and many others uh, were, were rangers uh, and uh, their job, uh, they are a special mission unit, but they are uh, the light infantry and uh, the best light infantry in the world. 
then the 160th Special Operation Aviation Regiment are helicopter pilots in the Army. They're the ones that provide the helicopter support, our Little Birds, our uh, Blackhawks, and our uh, large uh, rotary wing aircraft, our MH-47s, uh, our penetrating aircraft to get us in and out. The Air Force have got you know, our fixed wing aircraft, our uh, air, air attack, uh, as well as, uh, as others, but they also have the 24th Special Tactics, uh, which is our uh, PJs, our parachute jumpers, and, and our medics, and the Marine Special Operations, or the, the Raiders, you know, they bring uh, an awful lot uh, to the team as well, with their history going back to the Raiders uh, from uh, World War II. So uh, it's a very, very diverse group, uh, and uh, we, but we work together as a team. And you know, you'll have uh, a joint commander, we all come underneath a joint commander, whether it is Special Operations Commander Pacific, Special Operations Commander Africa, and underneath that officer, there's a staff, and then special operation units who are deployed from the continental United States for that area of uh, uh, operations. Wow, unbelievable. And when you're a SEAL Team 2, are your aspirations, does every SEAL want to become part of SEAL Team 6? Is that like the, 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 the ultimate for a SEAL to become? I know that you did underwater and I know that you did vehicle delivery. You did all of the, th you, you, to become what you did, you had to do it all. But if you just want, is your career not cemented into the SEALs until you make six or once a SEAL, no matter what team you're, you're as high a level as any of the other ones? Well, um, you know, I can't get into the numbers with some of these things there. We could talk about this without me talking about a, a, a specific number of the SEAL team. But um, we have uh, a, a couple of units that are the national mission units. So the, the Navy has a national mission unit. The Army has a national mission unit, which is pretty famous uh, as well. And um, in order to go into the Navy uh, national mission unit, you will have had to serve in a SEAL team for a certain period of time. You have psychological testing. You've got to have uh, multiple combat deployments in today's world. And then you have to do a series of interviews before board. And then you also have an assessment called Green Team, where I think uh, Green Team probably about 20, 24 weeks of a very, very demanding uh, advanced training in order to graduate from that before you become a member of the special mission unit. So uh, it certainly is, uh, uh, these units are the ones when um, you absolutely positively has to have a no-fail mission. So just like the raid in Abbottabad or what our, our colleagues in the Special Operations um, uh, Army, Special Forces Operational Detachment Delta, uh, the operations just need to be done. And these are the most experienced, most senior uh, special operators uh, who are resourced, trained, and extremely dedicated to the mission. And, you know, uh, JSOC, Joint Special Operations Command, was established after the failure of the Iranian hostage rescue mission uh, in April of 1980. And what it turned out to be initially was command and control for the Army Special Mission Unit and the Navy Special Mission Unit. They also established the 160th Special Operations. Now JSOC today, uh, to me, is JSOC solves America's toughest problems. And if the national mission comes to the JSOC commander and to the SOCOM commander and ask them to do something that might not be in their core competency, I believe the only question that they were to ask is, how much time do I have? Because they have the talent, they have the intellect, they have the experience, and if it's not in our core competence, if they have enough time, there's no doubt in my mind that they could develop the capability to, for, to establish uh, you know, 
victory on the battlefield and mission success. And one one more time, Admiral, what does JSOC stand for? Joint Special Operations Command, JSOC. Yeah. 1980. It's, yeah, it so it's, it's commanded by a three-star uh, general officer or a three-star admiral, and it is um, uh, headquartered at uh, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Now, is this something that you would have went on to next if you would have stayed in, or was it something that you did not want? Because you didn't command JSOC, correct? I did not. No, I commanded Naval Special Warfare. Uh, my friend Stan McChrystal at that time was a very famous uh, general uh, who commanded uh, JSOC for, I believe, five years. And then uh, General McChrystal was replaced by uh, Admiral Bill McRaven, who is uh, my closest and dearest friend. And uh, Bill uh, was uh, in JSOC as Stan's deputy, who um, actually was uh, you know, with the Army Special Mission Unit when they uh, captured Saddam Hussein. Uh, Bill led the mission to rescue Captain Phillips, and he also uh, was command and control for the mission uh, to kill Osama bin Laden. So, uh, when you uh, said rescue Captain Phillips, was that the one off of the movie that Tom Hanks was in? That's the one. That's the one. That's Did they get any of it right, according to your friend Bill? Did they get that movie right at all? Did he? I, I assume they had to talk to him about it. Uh, I don't know. I tell you what, though, Chad, that's one thing I'll talk about. I don't watch any movies, you know, <laughs> uh, because you, 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 next thing you know, you might wind up believing your own BS. So uh, You've never you seen Lone Survivor. You haven't seen Latrell's movie. You don't watch any of them. I, well, I tell you what, I did. Um, uh, I went to the world premiere up in New York of Lone Survivor because Marcus asked me to be there. And um, uh, because um, all of the families of the fallen, as you know, we lost 11 SEALs uh, on that mission and eight soldiers from the 160th Special Operation Aviation Regiment, 19 men in one day. So uh, all of the families were invited to that world premiere. So because Marcus asked me to go, and I'm very, very close with the families, my wife and I buried uh, every single one of those SEALs uh, that we, we went up. And uh, we wound up sitting, watching the movie with the family. And for me, it was very, very difficult to watch professionally, but uh, there was a scene there when the helicopter was about to be shot down and the wives and the mothers who were there, they know it's coming and they put their coats over their heads so they don't see it. And you're just sitting there and figured, my God, you know, how courageous. But uh, that's the only one uh, that I've seen. But I will say this uh, after this, uh, kind of as an aside, uh, uh, the Hollywood studio had a reception following the movie. All of the actors who were in the movie portraying the seals were there and all of the families were invited. And every family uh, had a table with the family name and the actor who uh, portrayed the family member was, was the host of that table. And I was talking to um, Sam Christensen, the mother of Lieutenant Commander Eric Christensen. And as I was talking to Sam at the reception, the actor came up and stood behind Mrs. Christensen. And I said, Sam, um, there's somebody here who wants to say hello. So she turns around and the actor said, hello, my name is Eric. And his name really is Eric. Uh, and she says, I know you played my son. And before he could say a word, he said, I want you to know my son would never say the F word. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, yes, Mrs. Christensen, I, that was just the movie. We threw that in for the movie, you know, so, but, um, uh, you know, my wife, my wife did see uh, uh, American Sniper, and uh, she felt that they did a very, very good job of portraying uh, Chris uh, and his wife, Taya. I saw just a s sample 
I was trying to change the channel and American Sniper was on. I saw a little bit, um, I'm watching the actor uh, portray Chris and I was just thinking, you know, he's, he's portraying him as a little bit too dark and a little bit too serious because I knew him very, very well. And he was just a regular guy, uh, down to earth teammate. And if you were in a room with Chris Kyle, when any of the other SEALs, you would never know that he was any different than anybody else. But uh, he was a dedicated family man and who, you know, who left the Navy because uh, for his family. And, uh, you know, he died, unfortunately, uh, trying to help a, a fellow veteran get through some uh, PTS. Uh, and um, a very, very good man, very, very good teammate. But um, the, these were my men. And I'll say this, though, Chad, I don't mean to go on too long. No, you can take your time. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I mentioned to you earlier that I, I ran the training command uh, from uh, 1997 to 1999. And uh, I was asked in the winter of 2018 by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, General Joe Dunford, who is a very, very good friend of mine, to return to uh, government service and uh, be the director of the National Counterterrorism Center. And this is not a job that you know, I envisioned and I didn't plan on coming back into government. But, um, you know, Joe has been a good friend of mine and he was uh, uh, on active duty now for nearly 40 years. But my thought was that I trained those men 20 years ago and they were young officers and very, very junior enlisted men. And 20 years later now, they're senior officers and senior enlisted and distinguished combat veterans. And if these guys could still deploy to the fight 20 years later, then the least I could do is return to be the director of the National Counterterrorism Center and help them in the fight. Unbelievable, Admiral. You're—I mean, that's what I think. That's what Mr. Arthur means by a national treasure. And I know that you don't need to hear stuff like that. But psychologically, you had mentioned when you were talking about moving up, and you would have to go through a psychological test phase of the SEALs to make sure that you were—I I assume the word would be suited to go on. And if I'm wrong, please correct me on that when you talk. Um, Thank you. Psychologically, personally. I, I mentioned this to you when we were in when we were on our hunts was I, I asked you and Scott and Tom and, and some other uh, warriors that I've had the humbling experience to hunt with and share duck blind with. Do they ever look down on citizens that don't take the step that you did to become a seal? Um, psychologically, that's always entered my mind of how. We are protected by you guys, your job, you were put on earth to do what you did. And that's always kind of the response is you, Chad, you give back in a way that you do to the warriors um, by, you know, you know, bringing them on hunts or being able to do charitable donations or events to raise money. Psychologically, do is that fair to say that you guys don't ever that's never even crosses a, a, a SEAL's mind or a warrior's mind, in, in, not even special forces, per se, just any soldier. And also the psychological part of it that I was going to touch on is let me, let me let you answer that first. So Admiral, because I, I, I really, you guys never, ever question anybody, do you? Well, it's, it's, it's a life of service. So, you know, you, you, you're, it's, it's called the military service, the Naval service. You, you're there to serve, to be a servant, a public servant and serve the American people. You take an oath to the constitution to protect and defend. And as far as, you know, actually being in the small unit, being in a, in, in a combat unit, um, it's a brotherhood. It really is a brotherhood uh, from, you know, the World War II, uh, the band of brothers. But if you go into a SEAL team, uh, these young men, everybody refers to each other as brother, and they absolutely feel that way. So you're dedicated to the mission, you're dedicated to service, and you realize, uh, you know, just think about it, there are 300 
130 million people in the United States and 2,500 seals, you know? So um, that's it. So, you know, but the thing is though, one of the biggest mistakes that you can make is thinking that uh, you're better than anybody else. Once again, my teammate is more important than I am and I'm here, you know, in, in uniform to serve the country and my American and my fellow citizens and to protect and defend. So I can't speak for everybody. You know, obviously there's some folks who've got egos and, um, but we wanna make sure that, you know, through the psychological testing that we've got people who are stable. Um, and then, you know, as you go through your career, you're tested several times because once you go through, you know, distinct, you know, combat, uh, long deployments, uh, some folks go through divorce, do you still have the, you know, the ability, the stability uh, to be able to perform a, a, a very, very demanding mission? And, uh, you know, sometimes our, our SEALs are actually, or other special operators are assigned to protect foreign dignitaries. Or when the president deploys overseas, special operation forces more often than not uh, augment the, uh, uh, the Secret Service in support of the Secret Service, you know, to protect uh, the president or senior dignitaries overseas. So you want to make sure that if you've got somebody close to, you know, a, a very, very senior, you know, politician with automatic weapons, uh, that uh, they've, they've, they're firing on all cylinders. But for the most part, we psychologically test the man to make sure that the man is doing okay, because the most important thing is the person. We, you know, we don't, um, uh, uh, are, what we say in, in special operations, is we equip the man, we don't man the equipment. The man, the SEAL, the special operator, the Green Beret, the Ranger, the MARSOC, they are the weapon system, the man himself. So that's where we dedicate the psychological, uh, that's where we deal with the well-being, and to make sure that they remain a whole person throughout these demanding times. As I said before, you know, with some of the young men that I, I pinned their trident on in 1999, here they are, 21 years later, still deploying to the fight. God, that's and, amazing. And, and, and that, that, that takes a toll, uh, Chad. It really does. So we just want to make sure that we do right by them and also have a baseline for when they finally do leave the service, you know, if there's anything that they need, that we make sure. This, you know, and we've also, traumatic brain injury is one of the signature wounds that we have of this war. And uh, you know, there's many of our, our, our special operators, and not just special operators, but service members, who have been very, very close to uh, explosives, missiles, fragmentation, roadside bombs, IEDs, and uh, it is the invisible wound. So that's what we want to make sure that you know, we do right by them, which is really the most important reason why we do psychological uh, screening. Personally, Admiral, and, and you don't have to talk about this obviously again, but have you ever questioned yourself or have you ever felt that you were going down that road of, of, the PTSD or the psychological part that you experiment from this. And it, I, it's, it might be hard to talk about, but I can't imagine what you've seen in 36, 34 years and in, in the battles and missions you've been a part of. I can't imagine that it couldn't affect you like in a big, big time way, psychologically, emotionally, all of that. Well, um, you know, I've had a, a series of psychological tests over the years and, and the, my psychological profile pretty much remained the same. Um, where, you know, the, the Myers-Briggs uh, tells you you've got a certain type of personality. And then, then you also have a role model who, you know, would, would be. And, um, you know, mine uh, was uh, ENTJ, 
and uh, it was the field marshal. And I remember asking the psychologist, I said, what does that mean, personality? He said, you know the guy with the leather coat and the hat and the goggles of the desert? He said, you were born to do this. But um, when I was the commander for 39 months, it was a very, very demanding time uh, for the community. We're involved, so with Marcus the Troll's movie, Lone Survivor, with Chris Kyle's movie, uh, uh, American Sniper, those are the time frame when I was in command. We had a very uh, a significant amount of losses, uh, both loss of life uh, and, and wounded. And uh, by the time I left there and retired, you know, I, I, I took another psychological screening test when I went into uh, to business and um, uh, my profile had changed. And uh, the psychiatrist said to me, there's no way a man your age would have changed the profile. But I know, Chad, that uh, through that experience that I had, uh, that I was a different person uh, because of, of the losses and, um, you know, uh, how, how dear those men were to me. So today, today, is it, do you find difficult days, Admiral, to get through because of that time or those, those memories of what you encountered? No, I, I really don't. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I, I hold them very, very close in my heart. Uh, we stay in touch with the families. And uh, here in uh, Washington, D.C., uh, we have uh, Arlington National Cemetery. And um, every year in early December, they have wreaths across America where uh, they place a, place a wreath on every single tombstone in Arlington National Cemetery, as well as through cemeteries throughout uh, uh, the United States, national cemeteries. And uh, this year, I went uh, with my wife, Kathy, and uh, we were be able to be joined by over 200 family members who were there to help us place wreaths on their sons, on their husbands, and on their father's uh, tombstones. So this is just ways that, um, you know, I, I, I remember them fondly, but also uh, remember that every single day is a gift. And I'm, I'm 68 now, and, uh, you know, my wife uh, would say to me, gee, how did we ever get to, to be this age? And I'd remind her that we buried young men that you know, never saw 28 or 38. So that every year is a blessing. And uh, what I try to do is through my life of service, going back into government service, uh, whether it be the National Counterterrorism Center or the Director of National uh, uh, Intelligence, is use that as a way to honor their sacrifice and continue to serve uh, in their memory. So no, I don't have tough times in that. I just feel so enriched uh, by having the opportunity to know these men. And then I still have very, very good friends uh, who've done far more than I ever have, uh, who, you know, we, we stay in touch all the time. Did, and, and again, shut me up if I have to, but did it ever come close for you, Admiral, that you, that your wife, that when she says something like that, do you ever think back of like, yeah, you're right. There was this one time or the second time that, that I didn't think I was getting out of there alive when you were on one of your missions? Well, not only just missions though, but, um, uh, training. Uh, special operations training is inherently hazardous. Uh, whether it is military freefall at night, uh, you know, you, you're, you are on oxygen with full combat equipment uh, up uh, 18,000 feet plus, uh, and you, draw, you jump out uh, of the aircraft at that height, and uh, you go 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, pull. So everybody's out, you're opening up your canopy at about 17,000 feet, and then you are flying into an unknown drop zone. This is just training. 
uh, you know, uh, and, and staying together. And there's an awful lot of things that could go wrong there. So I've had malfunctions uh, and I've had other things that, you know, luckily uh, you're properly trained and um, <laughs> been pretty lucky. But yeah, I've been, I've had, uh, I've had a severe accident years ago. Uh, I had a fast rope accident where uh, this was early on when we initially got the fast ropes. This was in October of 1982 and uh, the rope was faulty and uh, we were coming out of the helicopter. The rope broke and uh, you know, we fell and um, I broke my hip and my back and uh, was paralyzed uh, there for, for quite some, for, for a while. But um, uh, you know, it, it just luckily I was in good shape and healthy that even today, uh, although I broke my back, uh, I really have no problems with it because I, I stay strong and I stay in shape. But uh, you know, there are an awful lot of situations there. Uh, and, and, and that's why in the Special Operations Foundation, where we initially started off just providing scholarships to those who were killed in combat, that we, we opened the aperture because we were losing a significant amount of special operators in training because a lot of times you're developing your own tactics, techniques, and procedures. There's no book. Uh, you know, you have to write the new book. And with that, you know, mistakes are made and people, people get hurt. But I feel most fortunate uh, that I've been able to, uh, to leave uh, intact. But I will say this though, Chad, I, I have a, a medical record uh, about the size of a New York City phone book. You know, so. Admiral, are you telling me uh, when you're referring to as 18, 19,000 and, and pulling your canopy and your, and your shoot at 17,000 feet, is this considered halo? Uh, that's hey-ho. Hey-ho. High, high altitude, high opening. Halo, halo is when you go out and you fall and then you might, you know, you'll open up low, low altitude. So you just, you're falling through the radar and you do an awful lot of training that way. And then, you know, you, depending on what the uh, uh, height above the ground is, the elevation, um, you know, it's, it's, you're pulling above ground. So uh, if you're jumping in the mountains and, you know, you're jumping into a drop zone that might be about 5,000, 8,000 feet, you know, obviously, you know, you want to make sure you've timed that right. But uh, you'll come out, you'll fall. Everybody knows how long you're supposed to be falling. And everybody's been told that we're going to wave off and we're going to pull at a certain uh, elevation. And then, you know, we, we fall together. We look at each other with the wave off. Everybody turns, you pull, and then you come together. Because the most important thing is that everybody on the mission has got to land together. Because if somebody lands off the drop zone, then you've got to go find that guy. And there goes the whole timeline. So uh, anybody could jump out of a plane. That's the simple thing. But for the group of guys to, to be able to fall out of the plane and then pull and then come together, um, you know, that, that, that requires a little bit of practice. But, you know, uh, we, we, we jump significant amount of time, said uh, you, know, you, feel, you feel quite confident. So actually, I mean, the special operations today, uh, our, our special operations in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and other areas there, uh, they're, they're inserting uh, using the, the, the high, mostly the, the halo, high altitude, low opening uh, operation. So the, 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 the chance or the, the opportunity for air on that low opening seems to me higher, the odds of an injury because you're still, you're, you're not very high above the ground by the time you pull your chute and you haven't slowed down very much. So is your impact a lot harder when, or your opportunity for a harder impact there? No, no. You want to make sure that, you know, it's all thought out. So whatever it's above ground level, so, you know, it might be, you might be pulling at, uh, you know, 1,500 feet, 1,000 feet, um, uh, but the tactic, the, the threat will determine, you know, what, what, what altitude or what elevation you're going to be, uh, be pulling at. But, um, you know, these are very, very good uh, 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 parachutes. 
but also you're burdened down. You've got all your combat equipment. So you're extremely heavy, but uh, you know, you've learned, and this is at night as well. So you have to understand that, uh, but you're, you're jumping, you've got your night vision devices. Uh, you've got your communications with the other men, even as you're falling through the sky. Uh, now these are special operation folks that have got that. Uh, and, but you train time and time and time again in order to make sure that you know, when you have to do it in an operational uh, environment, that uh, it's just another day you've done this before. Because even the, the raid in Abbottabad, you know, when the SEALs went in there to that compound in Pakistan. Now, I mean, obviously it was demanding to go into Pakistan, but they had conducted operations like that in Afghanistan hundreds and hundreds of times. So, you know, it was not without great risk of not flying into um, a nuclear powered country, you know, and having a target one mile from their equivalent to West Point. But those men, whether it's the aviators that did that uh, or the SEALs on the mission had done that hundreds and hundreds of times uh, in an environment in Afghanistan. So it really was uh, obviously not without risk, but it was really definitely within their core competency. How many temperature changes do you go through in a jump like that, do you think? Have you ever, I, obviously there's studies done on this also, but when they're going into a mission like that, or when you're training, Admiral, when you jump at 19,000 feet, you're going from negative temperatures all the way down to maybe an 80 degree surface temperature, depending on what time of year, correct? That's correct. <laughs> wow, that's crazy right there. Like how, how much of that plays into training? Is that really hard to overcome in the beginning when you're, when you're feeling those temperature changes? Is that hard to endure? Well, you, bec you become conditioned uh, to everything. And you know, it, it, it's, you know, nobody starts off that way, Chad. Everything in training, whether it is SEAL training, Green Beret training, Ranger training, it's crawl, walk, run. You know, you, you, you learn to, 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 you know, you get confidence from doing things. In, in, in SEAL training, you, we have our obstacle course, our confidence course, where one of the obstacles is a 30-foot a uh, 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 rope climb that you have to climb. And, you know, that seems high initially. And then you've got a 50-foot tower that you have to climb. Then after that, you're rappelling down, you know, the side of a, you know, 100-foot um, uh, uh, dam. Then after that, you're jumping out of a perfectly good aircraft at a thousand feet. Then you're jumping out of a perfectly good aircraft at 10,000 feet. So that, you know, the first time that actually I, I had to jump out of uh, an aircraft at night on oxygen uh, and I'm up there at about 18,000 feet. It's at night. And I'm thinking to myself, this is the stupidest thing I've ever done. But then I just thought, you know what? Um, the high, you know, the net worked out, the repelling worked out. It worked out. I guess this is going to work out okay. So you just build confidence on what you've done before to, one, have confidence in your abilities, but also uh, you're, you're not going to get to the next level without having a good base because it's just too dangerous to do that. Admiral, have you ever had to do a mission where you jumped out of a, of a plane at 19,000 feet, land in water with your chute, and then swim into a mission? No. Does that ever uh, happen? No, what, 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 one of the things that I'll talk about, at least as, as far as a training mission, uh, and um, this would be typical. Now, this is for a combat swim. So um, you, you are, uh, you've got your static line parachute on. You've got your uh, oxygen rig strapped to you. And um, uh, you've got your weapons and, and, and the other things that you need. You're flying in a uh, MC-130. Uh, from uh, Scotland into uh, the Baltic. And uh, this is a specially configured aircraft that will fly uh, radar avoidance. And once we're over water, we're probably flying, I'm in the back, 
about maybe 100 feet above water, stable on the radar. And as you're coming close to where you need to exit the aircraft, um, uh, you're told, get ready. So you stand up, you make sure you're ready to go, and then the aircraft will go up from 100 feet to 1,000 feet. As it gets up to 1,000 feet, think like a bell curve, then everybody just jumps out. Um, and then the aircraft immediately dives down to 100 feet to get below the radar. So now you are you know, coming in, now you've got your parachute opened immediately, you're falling about 800 feet into the water, everybody together, you get there, you sink your parachute, and you come together, and now you wait for the German U-boat to come pick you up. Um, and uh, you know, so uh, I'd be there with my, my partners and uh, also with some German swimmers. And uh, it might take an hour or so for the submarine to find you. And then you find the submarine and all, you know, he'll have the periscope that will just come up, let you know that he's there. You come alongside, give it a couple of tap signals. He'll open up the uh, torpedo uh, shutters. They'll have a, a couple of torpedoes that are taking out so that you can get in. And then um, one guy will go in feet first. The other guy goes in head first. You put four men in one torpedo tube, four men in the other torpedo tube. And then I would be in charge and I'd be giving them tap signals. So once we're in and the last man's in and I can, you know, he tells me his feet are clear of the shutter door so that when they close him, he's not going to get uh, amputated. I'll tell him that they close the shutter door uh, and then uh, they, everybody's ready. So then what you have to do is decompress. So when you come in, you're about 14 meters, 15 meters. But when you go inside the submarine, they are pressurized to sea level so that you then have to go from 14 meters to sea level. Now the torpedo tube is designed for a machine, not a human being. So uh, the reason why my swim partner is facing me and I'm facing him and the guys behind us, he has his feet on top of me, but he's facing his swim partner is we're getting ready to then pressurize, depressurize. So um, uh, I give them a tap signal that we're getting ready. And with that, we have to breathe our breathing bags down about the size of, sincerely, paper. Um, and it, the, the breathing bag itself would be about the size of a, uh, a football. And once it's down, and the guys behind me tell me that they're ready to go, my swim partner tells me he's ready to go, then I give the tap signal, we're ready to go. And then within a second, you are pressurized from 14 meters to the second. It picks you up. And it's equivalent of a half pound block going off inside the torpedo tube. And it, and it, 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 it knocks the daylights out of you. Um, but we, we trained for that. Uh, and um, it's, I would say this, once we've done that, uh, when I came out of it, uh, I said, this is not for everybody. <laughs> but, that's you know, the name of this then, podcast, Admiral. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's it. That's it. But, um, but uh, you know, it, 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 the nice part about that is being able to do stuff, no matter how long that you were in that could, you know, you're a grown man that could just scare the daylights out of you. you know? <laughs> and then once you do it, just go, man, let's just go do it again. You know? So, so how do you, how do, at this stage in your life, how do you see, how do you find that thrill now? Are you a roller coaster guy? Are you, do you still go rent a plane and go jump out of a perfectly good airplane just for giggles? And I mean, are you, are you still seeking these thrills at all? Because it seems to me, once you meet that adrenaline level of what you keep describing on these training missions and then your combat missions, I would think that you would still need a taste of that once in a while. Is that, is that fair to say? No. Well, you know, I, I, I still, I, I mean, uh, Prior to um, coming up here, you know, I, I still was uh, a surfer. I had a house at Cocoa Beach in Florida uh, with a dozen surfboards. 
and uh, I had to wind up selling that house to come up here to uh, live in uh, Northern Virginia for the government job. But uh, what I really enjoy doing uh, is still, you know, shooting, whether it's out there, you know, shotgunning and uh, just being outdoors. I mean, I'm really looking forward to, you know, being able to go back out there and get back in the hunt and just being outside, not necessarily pulling the trigger, but, uh, you know, just being there with, with folks or just like in, in duck camp. Uh, tell me that's not the closest thing to being a SEAL. <laughs> We're up at 4.30 in the morning. We're in a John boat going through, uh, you know, the forest. Uh, you know, we tie up the John boat. We get all the deeks out. We patrol about 1,000, 1,500 meters into the woods. We set up and we hide behind trees and we ambush ducks. <laughs> you know, that's the closest thing you can get to being a SEAL once you leave, I think. You I'm know, a so. duck SEAL. I'm a, I'm a, that's, I'm a duck you SEAL. You are indeed. That's it. Well, I, I wanted to touch on real quick. I wanted to say this real quick. Psychologically, personally, I've always wanted to, you know, be a part of what you guys do. But I understand my place. I get that. And the other part that I wanted to touch on psychologically when you were discussing that part of it is when you mentioned you're, you're, you don't watch those kind of movies. For the last 30 years of my life, since I was probably 14 years old, I, when I saw Full Metal Jacket, I'd never watched another battle movie, not the Clint Eastwood ones, not the Saving Private Ryan's, not any of them. And I always told myself that I had a, a too much of a respect for the unit of, of, of military. It was, it was a weird fascination with myself internally, um, psychologically, Admiral, that I just can't watch them. My, there's other people that go to the theater on opening night and watch Chris's movie, and they watch Marcus's movie. I've never seen one second, even though Bradley Cooper played Chris, and I love Bradley Cooper's acting. I'd never, I wouldn't consider watching it on DVD, or, or, or that's, that's old to say, right? I, or, I wouldn't even on-demand it right now, or Apple TV, it or however you you get your content now i just i've never been that guy to watch a war movie i can't do it and well well to me um movies they are not documentaries they are there to entertain so if you go to the movie and you, you're watched it you're entertained or if you're inspired and motivated then, then, then that's a good thing to me on a personal level um i know these men i served with these men i led these men and, you know, for those I lost, I never would want to remember that individual based on how Hollywood portrayed that person. I always want to remember that individual on my relationship and how I knew the, 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 that man. Uh, but it, again, it, it, it's the movies, they serve a purpose. They're there to entertain. And if people go there and if they're entertained and if they're inspired by it, you know, I think that's fine. Yeah, I, 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 that's just psychologically. I was just being transparent on. It. Is it okay if I ask you a couple questions real quick before we go? I would love to do this again, and I can't wait to get back to duck camp. <laughs> I can't wait. But I just wanted to go over a couple. And again, I know you're a very humble man. That's the only thing that I ever say about Admiral is like his career. How can you be that humble? It's amazing to me how humble you are and and how sweet of a person you are. Um, the 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 decorations. I just wanted to find out. In, in a few words, what it takes to receive some of these. And your list is very long. And I just am going to say a couple. The Navy Distinguished Service Medal, how do you get that pinned on you? I, I think just uh, mostly, um, you know, for a distinguished leadership um, uh, in, in a demanding role. So I, I received uh, that award. Uh, for being the commander of the SEALs for 39 months while my force was deployed to uh, Iraq uh, and Afghanistan 
as well as doing uh, special missions on the presidential authority out in, in the Pacific. So uh, th th that's the reason why I was able to receive that award. And uh, that was probably the most meaningful time I've had uh, in uniform that, um, you know, with, with those brave men. And during that period of time, uh, this Naval Special Warfare received um, three presidential unit citations. And a presidential unit citation, this is for the men, for the units, or equivalent to uh, Silver Star, and is for the Organization for Gallantry in Action. So absolutely humbling. And, you know, I also had the opportunity to uh, put Michael Murphy uh, in, submit him for the Medal of Honor, and uh, that was able to be uh, approved. And uh, uh, Petty Officer Mikey Mansour for the Medal of Honor. So when I was in command, there were four Medals of Honor who had been awarded up to that date. And uh, uh, Mike Men received posthumously two out of the four uh, Medals of Honor that were awarded by the time I, I left command. And um, you know, so uh, I'll be honest with you, the bottom line is this, my men earned that award for me. Uh, I didn't earn it myself, uh, Chad. Would that go for all of these? The, the Defense Superior yeah. Service Medal, two times you were pinned the Defense Superior Service Medal. This is a very high honor. I, I mean, all of these are, but the Defense Superior Service Medal, what does that take? Well, you know, that, uh, you know, uh, distinguished service uh, in, in position. And I've also had um, uh, the Defense Distinguished um, Service Award, uh, which is um, just below the um, uh, Service Cross. But um, uh, these awards that you wind up getting, you know, just, I guess, I really didn't do much to uh, to get them, and I'll be honest with you, Chad. Um, and they're home, and they're in my house in Tampa in a box. <laughs> you know? uh, so and, you so uh, that you know. so that that's spoken like a well like a, a world champion athlete that that you know that there was more to the career than the championship or the medals. This obviously the distinguished gentleman that you are that it can't be told by that piece of metal. Even though you are decorated and highly decorated, you are you are more about the men that you served with and making sure that everybody understands that they were the ones that allowed you to receive those pins absolutely i am uh, absolutely um and even when i made flag um you know you know people ask how do you become an admiral and I, i'll tell you quite frankly i got carried to be an admiral on the shoulders of my men and uh they're the ones who they through their performance and every organization that i commanded uh did a superlative job it made me look good so uh the men decide you know if they they decide who they want to be their the the leaders and uh, the performance that they had over the years just made me look good and that's how I was able to wind up uh, uh, as a flag officer but I will tell you this as a seal you know when I came into the organization in 1976 and became a seal in 1977 we didn't even have navy captains we had two navy captains we had our first admiral in uh, 1987 and uh, when I became a, a one star uh, in 2001 there were three one stars, which is really, I mean, it's, I don't mean to diminish that. It's still an admiral or a brigadier general. Uh, but when I retired uh, 10 years later, we had 13 SEAL admirals, uh, four star, five three stars, and we were running Special Operations Command, JSOC, Fleet Commander. And um, it was a time when, you know, we were at war, where Special Operations experience became a premium. I'll tell you this one, I never thought I'd ever be an admiral. And Chad, I, in a million years, I'd ever think I'd be an admiral in a time of war. And I consider myself most fortunate uh, to have had that. Wow. Well, I would be the first to say from our 
um, our crew here at Banded and Foul Life is how proud we are to know you, to get the chance to meet you. Scott Steer was responsible for that. He's he's just he's the same way. He's so humble and just such a sweet man. And you, I, you go ahead. What do you want to say about Scott? Well, um, the reason why we came together for Scott, you know, Scott was a uh, you know Delta Force operator, and he was shot, and uh, he was at uh, Walter Reed Army Hospital. And when I was up here my first time at the National Counterterrorism Center from 2007 to 2010, you know, my wife, Kathy, was a volunteer um, you know, with um, uh, the uh, Special Operations Care Foundation. And she was the one that was in Walter Reed, who would be, we'd be meeting with, uh, with him, bringing him cookies and taking care of him. And that was when we, you know, that's how he became aware of our foundation. But actually, my wife, Kathy, got to know him before I did. I love Scott. I often look at my plaque. You guys brought uh, Prairie Wings Duck Club and Brandon and Joel and Brian and Todd Ross and everybody down at Prairie Wings. You brought a plaque down there for the Prairie Wings Duck Club. And then you brought me one with my name on it. I have it in my in one of my studio rooms and I look at it every day. It's in a place to where when I look at it, I think of just I go back and look at the pictures of you and I and Brandon and Tom and Rossi and and Joel and everybody in the woods and just the the stories and the admiration and the respect. And it just there, I've always said Duck Camp is that place where you can get to know somebody. And I'm so humbled to know you, Admiral, and I can't wait to do that part again. I'd love to do another podcast and talk about hunting and, and just life in general. Your career is unbelievable and, and your humility is even more unbelievable. So congratulations on the career, your family and, and, and everything that's going, going the way it is in life for you. And I hope that this coronavirus is over quick to where we can get somewhere to have a glass of wine and say hello. It will be over, you know, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, soon. But in the meantime, you know, we've just got to uh, do our part and we all got to work together. And, and, and it's a team effort to get through this. But I will tell you, though, I mean, um, I've been on a lot of hunts and uh, duck camp is without a doubt the best. And my friend Tom Arthur sent me a book last year called The Grand Prairie. I don't know if you've uh, got a copy of that. I got it. That. I did. Yeah. You know, the history of uh, uh, duck hunting and hollowed ground. And uh, it's mentioned there. And I also got to say that I really appreciate uh, Joel keeps in touch. And I get the text from Joel every now and then. But um, uh, without a doubt, on the many, many hunts that I've had, my time with you and your team. And I just want to also say, you know, thank your crew. I think you've got a great crew there uh, for the, the foul life. But uh, it's good to be back with you, my friend. And uh, you stay well. Take good care of your daughter. And uh, all your friends out there who are going to tune into this podcast, you know, take good care of yourselves and your family. We'll get through this if we all hang together. Yes, sir, Admiral. Thank you so much. We are going to get together. Two things you and I are going to do together in the near future is duck hunt for sure. And I want to go fishing with you in Florida. I want to take you and chase some selfish one day off of Lauderdale or Lighthouse or Boca Raton. So plan on that. I'll start setting it up when this gets over. We'll figure out the right timing and meet down in Florida and have a little celebration of friendship. I appreciate you. Thank you for your time, Admiral. This has been another episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody. Please support the partners and sponsors that support us. Thank you guys so much for listening. And today was special. I got goosebumps, no pun intended. Tom, hit that button. This is Leith Lofton. What you going to do when the money's all gone? Life on earth won't last too long. So what you going to do when the money's all gone? Gemini.